In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Betches Media presents... Chrissy Teigen referred to Donald Trump as a pussy-ass bitch. Look, he's a sick puppy. He, he, shouldn't be, he shouldn't be there. Well, I lost half a day of skiing. I'm going to punch him out and I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to be happy. The Betches Sub Podcast. A speaker has not been elected. Hello, everybody. It's Amanda, and this is the Betches Up Podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. Today is the first in a series of interviews we are running during June, which is Pride Month, and today we are kicking it off with Alex Schmitter. He is an Emmy, Peabody, and Critics' Choice Award-nominated film producer and the Director of Transgender Representation at GLAAD, which is, of course, the nation's leading LGBTQ media advocacy organization. His producing credits include Changing the Game, Disclosure, and coming soon, the documentary Chasing, Chasing Amy. Hello. We're so excited you can be here. We got to chatting already. Hello, hello. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, how you doing, Alex? I am feeling um, exhilarated to be here. Obviously, Pride Month is very uh, heavy with a lot of different emotions, but I'm always heartened to be able to talk about some of the issues facing our community and um, you know, have these kind of conversations, which don't just touch yes. the surface level, but go a little deeper. Exactly. And I'm hoping today we can sort of range between some of the tough stuff and some of the fun stuff and just stuff that's just really meaningful and worth reflecting on. So you are all about, you know, your kind of what you do for work is representation and you manifest that through the films that you're making and also your work with GLAAD. I'm really curious to sort of start this conversation. Was there a moment of LGBTQ representation in film or TV that was particularly meaningful to you growing up that you think about that sort of guides how you do your work? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I think it's interesting to talk about it, too, because when I say that it was seeing Boys Don't Cry when I was 12 years old, that that was the first time I saw myself and a trans man ever represented. Um, for those who have seen the film or and those who have not, it's about Brandon Tina, a real life trans man who when his gender history was uncovered, he was brutally raped and murdered. So that was the first mm -hmm. time I ever saw myself represented in media, which, as you can imagine, is both a relief to know you're not the only one experiencing what you are of your gender, but also immensely terrifying. And I credit it to delaying my own self-acceptance for about a decade. So when we're talking about representation, I come from a very personal place of understanding the life-saving and changing nature of what we are able to see of ourselves in media, both in terms of an overrepresentation or an underrepresentation, a lack or a hypervisibility part of that. And it, it's what keeps driving me forward because I never want someone to have to experience what I did and what I know so many trans people especially have to of having to cling to one piece of representation that doesn't feel fully representative or authentic to the broad and diverse experience of possibility that's able to be of our lives if we're able to just mm -hmm. uh, pursue those yeah. truthfully. Wow. It's such a gut punch to hear you say for a decade 
that's mm-hmm. the sort of perception that you internalize. Do you remember sort of what began to shake that and when you thought, wait, this can be differently and I this can be different and I can be part of the solution of how we represent, how our community is represented? Yeah, I mean, I think that process of self-acceptance takes all different kinds of time depending on where you're from, who your community is. When I was growing up in the OC, Orange County, California, I try not to advertise it. Um, <laughs> I didn't know anyone else like me. I was like one of the only out people in my high school. And so I experienced a lot of honestly bullying from mostly adults who thought I was the worst influence of all time. I was a straight A student, didn't do drugs, didn't drink, like, but I was visibly gender nonconforming and was into girls. And that was a deep problem. And so I think part of my own also delay was that I didn't know anyone else like me. I didn't have a community that I could turn to and have conversations with. But I I am fortunate that my family has been so accepting of who I am and allowed me to lead. Um, But it was really, you know, in college that I started Mm -hmm. getting getting to know all these people who opened my mind to like what it could mean to be myself. Um, But even then, that was 2012, 2013. I was sitting in an abnormal psychology class and it was gender identity disorder. And I was sitting in the front row because, of course, straight A students sitting in the front row. And I put my hand over my mouth and sort of slunk down and was like, oh, my gosh, they're talking about me and my life. And so that then, you know, caused, I think, the biggest Mm -hmm shift in the way that I was thinking about myself and simultaneously studying children and mass media about Mm -hmm. the ways that we um, internalize the images we see of ourselves and how that feeds into a culture that is setting expectations for who we're supposed to be, especially in very gendered terms. Like Mm -hmm. if you're a girl, you're supposed to do this. If you're a boy, you're supposed to do this. And there's sort of no in-between or ability to explore more regardless of what your gender is, which I think is what I'm also really interested in in terms of representation of like, Mm -hmm. can we live in a more free place for us to all just exist Mm -hmm. and be? And I think that's where trans people actually, I think, um, have a very important role in the modeling of what happens when you know yourself so well that you are going to reject the very rigid roles that people are often forced into. And so I hope Mm -hmm. I've now talked too much, but I could talk about this for hours. So (laughs) that's the point. That's the point. Well, I'm curious, did you like also have an interest in you've mainly been a producer in filmmaking independently or was that sort of the the direction that your interest in representation took was film and media? I mean, all of this has been accidental. When I graduated from college, I didn't know that trans people could have jobs because I never saw that represented in media. And I say this very openly, like as someone who's 4'11", 5'2", on my driver's license, (laughs) you know, I'd only seen trans people protesting in the streets, which is a very valuable, valid um, way to contribute and show up. But again, for my stature, that's maybe not where I'm best contributing my skills and what I can sort of give back and contribute in the way Mm -hmm. that like I bring myself into the world. And so I just started applying to all these LGBT centers. I ended up working as a marketing and communications person at the Los Angeles LGBT Center. And that was right around the time that 
trans issues were coming to the fore because Orange is the New Black had just premiered on Netflix with Laverne Cox um, playing that historic role. The conversation about Caitlyn Jenner was just sort of exploding. And I feel very grateful looking back now at the self-awareness I had not to immediately respond to media inquiries. And instead, as I was figuring out who I was, look around to people who had been themselves for a lot longer than me and had been in conversations. And instead of me just expressing from my own perspective and experience what I was going through, um, having that self-awareness to get um, some context around what issues the community had been talking about for a lot longer than I had been myself Mm -hmm. and figuring out how to translate that into ways that people would understand in a mainstream media context, which I credit, you know, my upbringing in Orange County when I didn't know anyone else, I was sort of the first line of education. And um, so translating those skills into then my role at GLAAD has been very much accidental. And I feel very grateful to be in an organization like GLAAD, where I'm able to bring my full self as also a filmmaker, which Mm -hmm. is, I also fell into accidentally. Um, I was there and Sam Fader, the director of Disclosure um, and producer Amy Shoulder had come in for an informational meeting with my boss, Nick Adams, who I hope we get to talk to a little bit more because he's an undersung hero of the LGBTQ movement. Um, But they were in the office and talking about this this movie, Disclosure, that was going to explore the history of trans representation in TV and film. And I was like, look, I've never produced anything before. I don't know what I'm offering to do. But if you need someone to bring you coffee, if you need moral support, a cheerleader, it's the role that I love occupying most, call on me. I'm here for it. And that's sort of what led on my producing Mm -hmm. journey and have been very lucky to collaborate with filmmakers whose vision I believe in and um, whose stories I feel like are challenging what we've seen before. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click Gift Mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. 
You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. It's so interesting that you mentioned that, you know, the history of people in this country who are transgender didn't begin you know, as soon as like Netflix started to make documentaries about it, there's tons of it, there's context. Um, and obviously you need to sort of like, you can't just press play now. So, you know, you started by talking about Boys Don't Cry. We talked about, um, we talked about Caitlyn Jenner. We talked about Orange is the New Black. You know, I phrase this question, like what's gotten better in terms of trans representation in media, you know, what's gotten better and what's gotten worse, but also feel free to quibble with those words, because I feel like, you know, like you mentioned with Boys Don't Cry, it was, it had a complicated impact. It sounds like you saw yourself represented, but in a really um, in a really like tough way. So how are things improving? What is the general direction? What are you, what are some encouraging signs that you are seeing and that you're trying to motivate? And what, what do you see that sort of still kind of like pinches and is like, Oh, why is that still happening? Well, I love that you asked this question in this way of like better, worse, but also complicated. Is there a right answer? Probably not. I, from my perspective as both a filmmaker and as someone who works at GLAAD who's gotten sort of a master's degree in media representation, I think what I look at is underrepresentation and overrepresentation. Because in Disclosure, you see the hypervisibility of very specific narratives that have included trans people, often in very derogatory, defamatory, and harmful ways, because this there's this statistic that is both hilarious and horrifying that more Americans believe they've seen a ghost than met someone who's transgender. So that means every character on television or ev every storyline in a movie is perhaps someone's first interaction and or meeting with someone who's transgender. And if we consider the history of what those images and portrayals have looked like, that's not great. No. It's not great. We've been portrayed no. as like the worst things that you could imagine in media without a necessary counterbalance that is accurately representing who we are as people, which I, I joke sort of in my own social circles that I, I dream for the day and am motivated to hopefully get to a place where trans people can just be hot and boring. Yeah. <laughs> um, because most yeah. of the trans people I know are very hot and boring, but I don't say that in a negative way. They're I say that as we're just life. trying to live yeah. our lives and have some iced coffee and watch <laughs> movies and be yeah. with friends. Um, and I think so much of our stories is often centered on physicality, on transformation of the external versus the internal, which 
most of us hopefully are growing all the time in our life. Like we're all hopefully learning and evolving and coming to know ourselves better. But for trans people, it's always fixated on the ways that we may change our bodies to come into congruence. But like, that's also not unique to trans people, which we'll get into that in a bit Mm -hmm. about like sort of all the anti-trans legislation that's being introduced that is also having compounding and negative impacts, not only on trans people, because again, we live in a very diverse society where a lot of us are dealing with a lot of issues and struggles that we need Mm -hmm. dealt with from a systemic institutional place of like, hey, can we all get healthcare right. or what? Um, I'm totally. sort of forgetting your question, but I will go back to saying what we have seen gratefully is that there is more interest mm-hmm. in telling trans stories. What is concerning is that the proportion of interest isn't matched with the authenticity of the people telling those stories. So there's a lot of well-intentioned, well-meaning cisgender allies who are like, okay, we're going to tell these stories, which is amazing, but we need actual trans storytellers empowered to be in places of leadership, like in producing, like in editing, like in directing, like in being showrunners in a way that hasn't matched up with that interest in Hollywood because we have all but solved the casting issue. You can't can no longer cast a cisgender actor to play a transgender character, which is great, but it's the behind the scenes that I think we really need to work on. And I'll just do one final plug of, I think comedy as a genre is such an important place to be because, you know, we could talk about the influence of Will and Grace, Mm -hmm. which is celebrating, I think it's 25th anniversary right now. Um, And the impact that those characters had on acceptance for especially gay people. Mm -hmm. Um, We haven't had that for trans people. Um, And especially with the proliferation of different platforms and the opt-in, opt-out of different stories, um, comedy is one of those ways to deflate Mm -hmm. discomfort and connect us over laughing together about something and not laughing at each other. And so I think that's a place I'd really like to see some movement, but that requires telling the joke from the inside, not from the outside. And something tells me there are plenty of incredibly written pilots already by people from this community uh, like with that are just waiting, you know, to be given an opportunity. Just waiting and also waiting in solidarity with the writer's strike because I think the labor rights movement and sort of what we're experiencing is, oh, these issues are so intertwined and intersectional and we're going to stand in solidarity with each other because we know institutionally, things need to shift. Yeah. I mean, just imagine it's already hard enough to be, to try to stay employed and make a living as a writer and then add on, you know, discrimination based on gender identity. It's certainly, you know, really, really tough. You mentioned some of this legislation that I do want to touch on uh, for a few minutes. So it's only June of 2023. States have already introduced twice as many anti-trans bills as they did all of 2022. What do you think is motivating this really rapid escalation? Well, and and um, thank you for this question, because I've been very disappointed to listen to some podcasts from some outlets who have in the past been more reputable, sort of not um, pulling the curtain back on where this is coming from and why. And um, if you really do just look at where this is coming from, it is from a very well-funded and well-coordinated effort from, and I have notes in front of me Mm -hmm. because I don't want to get it wrong, 
um, organizations that are known and designated hate groups by the Poverty Law Center, Southern Poverty Law Center. And these groups did research to see what they could effectively galvanize their base around, which if we refer back to that ghost statistic Mm -hmm. that more people believe they've seen a ghost than met a trans person, well, it's easy to capitalize on people's fear about this group of people that that most people don't know anything Mm -hmm. about or only know of the media sensationalism that is sort of put around us. And then you add on to the fact that there's always been historically ways of saying we're protecting the children in quotations and using children as the way to justify whatever political priorities any one group is trying to put forward. And so you put those together in addition to an inarguable, inarguable diversification of Gen Z, the most racially, ethnically and queer generation of all time. Um, you add all those different factors and then you have a political base saying, okay, this is what's going to be effective to not only play upon um, people's fears, but also attempt to segment the LGBTQ community. Because with marriage equality, there was obviously a focus on making sure that couples could get married and have the same equality and legal rights as straight counterparts. Um, this this is meant to divide and conquer all of us. Um, and so it's been very, I, I can't imagine growing up as a kid uh, who is trans. It was so much easier when no one was paying attention. And I think what's really important to state is that trans people have always been around for centuries in all different cultures, traditions, although because of white Western colonialism, we often don't know or hear about those traditions or they're not called by the same names that we use Mm -hmm. in the United States with transgender. Um, So as an eternal optimist and idealist, because I think in this work, in order to motivate me to get up and keep going, that's where I have to lean on. Mm -hmm. But um, people under the age of 30, when you ask that same question of, do you personally know someone who's transgender, that percentage goes up to 50%. Wow. So these legislators who are falling into that category of people who don't know anyone who's trans and so are proposing bills because of this fear and because of this political expedience they think they're going to have, you look at also a younger demographic who trans people are part of their lives, their friend groups their schools, their communities. And it's much harder than to um, try to convince those people that we shouldn't have agency over our own bodies and lives. Yeah. Yeah. And so I really appreciate the beginning of your answer, especially because even sometimes on this podcast, I find myself kind of falling into a habit of being like, you know, the far right, they're just reaching for anything that sticks and they found trans kids. But no, they they've hired people to do research to to find these targets. And they've decided that children are those targets. You mentioned, you know, the importance of like as people, um, you know, as people like more people do come out and people realize they do have transgender friends and family. Something that really struck me rewatching the 2021 documentary Changing the Game, which follows a number of trans athletes. They're all in high school, right? Yes. Um, you know, there were members of their communities who were supportive of them who 
I don't know, this sounds discriminatory, but it would strike you nowadays as somebody who might not, you know, mm-hmm. the, the would strike you as somebody who is fine, you know, a parents rights person, but given the right framework, like given the right experience, you know, the, the subjects of the documentaries and the people around them are like, of course this person should be mm. playing on this team. So I want to talk about that movie, you know, transphobic politicians exploit the fact, like I said, that many people do have strong gut reactions to trans students playing sports. Every state seems to have different policies based on a lot of criteria, um, even people that don't see themselves as transphobic or prejudiced. So I'm curious if that weighed on you and the other producers and the filmmakers thinking as you created the documentary and you told these young people's stories and, as I mentioned, how you told their broader community stories. Yeah, I mean, th- there's so many questions in there yeah, that I'll yeah. do my best to answer, but that film to me is one of the proudest I've ever worked on, not only because of what the film is, but also what has come for the young people who we featured in the film and the way that I've seen them grow and blossom and benefit from the platform that we were able to help provide through the film. And I think it's really important to talk about the fact that like in the film, you see these kids being braver than they should ever have to be to be kids and to do what they love, which is play sports with their friends. Um, And that is sort of what kids across the country are being required to do right now is instead of go play with their friends on the playground, they have to show up to the state legislature and defend their humanity and advocate for health care. I mean, it's no one should have to be that brave or courageous to be who they are and be able to live their life safely and freely. But I love this question because when I was first approached about the documentary from director Michael Barnett and my co-producer Claire Tucker, all of my red flags went off. I was like, why are you why are we going to Texas? <laughs> why, are, why are you doing any of this? Because I recognized, even as a trans person, and I share this very openly because I think it's really important to talk about the process that we get to social consciousness. I didn't I wasn't born knowing all of these mm-hmm. all of these things, but I had to unlearn a lot of my own internalized transphobia and sexism and racism underlying what these athlete bands are really about. Um, and a lot of that was when I took a step back and looked at the media landscape. I was like, wait, why do we only hear about trans athletes when they're winning? Mm -hmm. We never hear about them when they're just participating, which is the majority. But you wouldn't know that from looking at the skewed media narrative that like there is trans domination in sports. It's like, well, of course we would be primed to think that because we never hear anything otherwise. And so I had to do my own working through of those issues internally in order to help tell this story in the best way possible, which my I'm so grateful for the collaborators that I had in telling that story because they also knew this was a hot button issue that everybody was about about to start talking about this, even though they, they really yeah. hadn't. But I mean, the film came out in 2019, actually yeah. premiered at Tribeca. Gotcha. It took a while to get distributed and sort of make its way through into the zeitgeist. Um, but What was important for us in the way that you cited was, I think it's often so easy to binarily pit people of like, well, if you're conservative, you're this, and you obviously don't support this. And if you're progressive, or if you're a part of this group, or like we tend to paint and generalize people as not then having complexity, which is what the hope is ultimately for all of us that we can see be seen as humans. 
unfortunately for trans people right now, we are not seen as humans. We are seen as everything other. And so for us, well, it was really important to tell Mac, Andrea, Sarah, and Terry's stories with the most authenticity to themselves. It was also incredibly important to take stock of what other stories existed out in the world. Like how our story, how this story we were all telling together was going to exist in a collective and not on a blank page. Mm -hmm. I think I get very frustrated personally as a storyteller when other storytellers aren't looking around at what the collective or the collection is that theirs fits into. Because unfortunately then we start to regurgitate Things yeah. that we've seen before without an interrogation of why are we saying the same things that have been said unless it's intentionally. And so for us, I, I just I couldn't be more proud of that film because of what it has meant to the young people in it and also what I've seen it do for audiences, mm -hmm. which is that showcase. You actually can be a Southern Baptist sheriff in Dallas, Texas and support your trans mm -hmm. grandson. And those aren't necessarily in conflict because underlying so much of how you love and support the people in your life, it's like, I see you who, for who you are and I take you for that. And I I will quote Grandma Nancy and then I will stop. But um, she once said, um, you don't have to get it to go with it. Mm -hmm. And... I don't understand sort of what your lived experience is because I haven't walked yeah. a mile in your shoes, but I can respect and empathize with what you've gone through. And I think that's what I hope for mm -hmm. any of the films that I'm a part of is that it's it's relating on the human level and on um, a culmination of the best parts of us and not the worst. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like you were saying, sort of taking into consideration the broader what else is happening. I The reason I love a lot of the movies you brought, especially this one, is like it's clearly sort of slightly in conversation with what was going on without feeling like it was like, OK, explain yourselves, children, like but still <laughs> yeah. sort of, you know, reacting and sort of un aware of the questions that people might have as as they were watching it. Um, just kind of more broadly there, what role does accurate and compassionate represent representation play? You know, you said this movie was made in 2019. Um, this conversation, for the reasons you mentioned, has become even more central to what some far right politicians are talking about. So, you know, you've talked a lot about having to just, you know, not overrepresent, not underrepresent, and you know, do the unfortunately necessary work of humanizing people. That is unfortunately still necessary. But you've also said like it would be great if they could just we could just be hot and boring. So, so how <laughs> do you? But also, some people are are complicated and they have negative aspects to their personality. So, how do you kind of balance the? you know, humanizing this community while also allowing them to be complicated. I mean, I think the benefit of any kind of humanizing portrayal is that someone can be faulty and flawed if they're allowed to be human. Where we're mm -hmm. sort of operating from, though, is that you're not necessarily being portrayed as human if you're only your body parts or you're only the medical transition that you've decided to pursue or not. Like, that's not allowing people to live in their full humanity or the emotions and psychological transformation that occur when you're able to be yourself and sit comfortably in your own skin. So representation and the reason I've been at GLAAD for nearly, I think it's over seven years wow. now cumulatively, is that representation is key to counteracting the lies that politicians are spewing because stories are empathetic access points to characters 
storylines, people that we may not necessarily personally know in the same way that when I was growing up, I didn't know any trans people. The only access point I had was Boys Don't Cry. And so when I ultimately did meet Hillary Swank, like going on the festival circuit with changing the game and we were able to acknowledge and appreciate each other's art. Yeah. I was like, okay, I, I think I'm on yeah. the right track. Uh, I think I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But wow. the way that we relate to characters on mm -hmm. a screen and the way that other characters are reacting to them and whatever they're going through, like media is a model for how we behave socially for better or worse. I mean, we could talk, we could have a whole session about how romantic comedies of the past don't really teach us the best ways no. to court and date. So they are social cues that we need to question and be thoughtful about. And what are they saying? And who are they saying those things about? And so it's so important because again, if this is your first interaction or familiarity, it's, it's so important that when you're sitting down and watching a TV show and there's a trans character, what are the other characters doing? Are they laughing at that person? Mm -hmm. Are they reacting violently? Or are they, you know, having a laugh about something boring and stupid? Mm -hmm. And that will inform how then people treat us out in the real world. And GLAD has some compelling data as well that we just released for our annual Accelerating Acceptance Report, talking about the fact that when people are exposed to portrayals and images of people in our community, they become more accepting because it is not some unfamiliar, non-personal, abstract, issue-based whatever. Yeah. It's actual people who yeah. are living their lives and are, who are also out and about dealing with very, many of the similar struggles that we all are. So yeah. it, I will continue feeling just so passionate about this work because the media informs how we see ourselves and each other and ultimately how we treat each other outside of, of the screens that we're um, constantly sort yeah. of just yeah. sitting in front of. Is part of kind of like effective or helpful representation, I mean, what role does, you know, trans performers being cast in roles where it is never acknowledged? I mean, I'm thinking of like MJ Rodriguez and Loot. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think it's ever really acknowledged. And she's just an amazing, powerful, comedic person in that show. But like, if you don't know she's trans, is that making a difference or does it matter? Like, can she just be an actress? Can she just be hot? Oh, I love this question you know? so much. Um, and I think it's twofold. It's yeah. dependent on what the objective is. Yeah. So if you know who Michaela J. Rodriguez is and you see her playing this amazing um, right. woman in this context of, you know, nonprofit world, which yeah. is so funny <laughs> in and of itself, that's great for Michaela. Yeah. It's great for audiences if they know who Michaela is to understand that like she's just a hot woman who's right. being a badass for from a glad perspective we have our where we are on tv and annual and studio responsibility index reports which um count the quality and quantity of lgbtq characters, characters yeah. if a character isn't explicitly said to be trans or said to be gay lesbian bisexual or queer we we also don't want to leave audiences left to interpret that mm -hmm. because something like the Hayes Code, which if you had any kind of queer representation in the past, you sort of had to just code it mm -hmm. subtextually so that people were then, okay, if I'm seeing a flamboyant man, I'm going to then interpret that that's a gay man, even though that can't be stated out loud. But that then also leads into a lot of stereotypes and tropes about what it means to be a gay man. So 
for us in how GLAD measures representation. We need to know explicitly Mm -hmm. who this character is on screen because so many people don't have the benefit of knowing who are the people making this, who are the people playing these roles. They're often only presented with what's on the screen. So what's on the screen needs to speak for itself. Mm -hmm. And I also take that into my filmmaking. When I'm making something, I want audiences to feel held and that the people behind the scenes are taking into consideration how they're going to be um, approached from yeah. a storytelling perspective because they may not know I'm working on the film, but I want them for any film that I'm a part of to feel safe going in um, because that's the track record I'm, yeah. I'm le- trying to yeah. leave. And it sounds like there's obviously not an equation, but it sounds like you and your colleagues at GLAD are providing some frameworks and tools and ways for people making these films to catch themselves and implement, you know, fixes and how that is represented. I want to pivot to Chasing Chasing Amy, a super exciting uh, project you produced. It's directed by Sav Rogers, premiering at Tribeca this year. So tell me what the film's about. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. It's premiering this week at Tribeca and It is about Sav Rogers, a queer kid who was growing up in Kansas. It's a documentary, by the way. Uh, He sees Chasing Amy, the Kevin Smith film of the late 90s, and it saves his life as a queer kid growing up in Kansas. And um, he ultimately... Will you um, quickly summarize the plot in case... I mean, we have some younger listeners. I... (laughs) Even, I mean, look, I, I had seen I saw it as like an Amy. adult, yeah. Right, and even in like Blockbuster, yeah. and for those who don't know what that <laughs> is, it's a video store that used to exist, uh, brick and mortar. But it is about a uh, woman who is said to be a lesbian who falls for a man um, who is played by Ben Affleck. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, there was a lot of controversy actually about the film itself, because Kevin Smith being the director, also writing it, there's a lot of conversation about was Alyssa bi because mm-hmm. she's interested in not only women, but also men and potentially other people. However, the documentary is all about Sav's, the personal significance that this mm-hmm. has for Sav's life. It saves his life. He ultimately gives a TED talk about the rom-com that saved oh. his life. And this documentary just interrogates how something that can be so meaningful for him personally also has a more controversial and conflicting um, legacy in queer media canon and sort of wrestling with that. Um, And in addition to that, you see his own growth from the perspectives that he's absorbing and also coming to into his own as a trans man, which I'm not going to give away anything, but there are so many unique parallels to his life and his romance, as was in Chasing Amy unintentionally. And what I love about it and why I signed on to it is because I had a general with Sav and we both come from this place of we are not the worst things that have ever happened to us. And we have so Mm, much vibrance and fullness and sense of humor and hope because ultimately when you live in a world that makes it so unnecessarily challenging to be yourself, what else is there to do but to find that hope, to find that joy 
um, to lean into love, whether that's platonic or romantic or otherwise. And what I love about this film and the way we made it is that when I had this general with Sav, we're both trans men, we had a lot of difficult conversations about what would be in the film and how we would even represent his transition because um, there's a certain level of reflecting that you have to do having lived as yourself for a while to know what you want to share Mm -hmm. for your life and what you maybe want to keep more private. And what I appreciated was that when Sav first approached me and we're sort of just becoming best friends and then producing partners and collaborators, he was open to my feedback about like, hey, can we actually like think about showing your transition differently? Mm -hmm. Like, do we have to do this in every other way that every trans film has ever done it, even if we're trans ourselves and like ultimately through being able to trust each other and know that we're all going for the same thing at the end of the day, we're able to argue Mm -hmm. and disagree and be creative and think imaginatively. And and the reason I so adore him as a collaborator is because we both want to challenge and be more imaginative about the stories we're telling than what we've seen before, even if sometimes they may be ahead of their time a little bit. Mm -hmm. Do you find that you sometimes have to check yourself sort of like, you're not making you're not making this film for everyone. There, like any film that's going to hit hard for anyone is probably not for everybody. So mm-hmm. do you do you also sort of I mean, this film it, from the trailer, it looks like a super exciting, like nostalgia meets romance meets coming of age. So then in the back of you and Sav's head, is there like, but how will the transphobes react or do you just like narrowly focused as artists and just tell the story? I mean, I, I think both Sam and I are certainly hyper vigilant yeah. about that. Like, how could anything that will be in this film be used against us? Got because it. unfortunately, that's the world we live in. Yeah. And both of us are very culturally minded. Like, I work at GLAAD as the director of transgender representation. And Sav is the executive director and founder of the Transgender Film Center. We are mm-hmm. both deeply invested in how stories are entering into the world. So, of course, we're paying attention to that, but it's not driving our decisions. However, both of us are very interested in making commercial films, commercial Mm -hmm. projects that reach outside our community and also reflect our community in a way that they're going to feel seen and they're going to feel held, as I've mentioned. Like, whenever you go see a movie that, I'm making or Sav is making, I think both of us are very aligned and like, you don't have to worry that Mm -hmm. you're going to be re-traumatized or not be sort of lifted up at the end. And maybe I'm like spoiling every movie from here on about like what (laughs) the ending will be. But life is hard enough when we go to the movies. I don't know my, my hope and what I always sought in any kind of storytelling was like, something to take away that makes me feel more connected to the people around me. And um, so in making something that is super specific to Sav's vision, especially of Chasing Chasing Amy and what that Chasing Amy meant to him Mm -hmm. and being specific about that and that vision while also taking into account how trans stories have always been told otherwise, we we can do things differently and just as I was mentioning before, be intentional about the decisions that we're making and not just do something because it's been done before, but do it because it's actually going to tell the best story possible. Mm -hmm. 
This has been incredible. Thank you so much, Alex. Also, our Gen Z listeners, you will get style inspiration from Chasing Amy. It's crazy. I was <laughs> yes. rewatching it and I was like, this is what they're doing, doing the dances 20, it's on been my, how many it's years? It's just this full cycle. Yeah, we're, we're, doing we're there. It. We're there in that cycle. Alex, where can people learn more about what you'll be up to next and how can they how can they support or learn more about Chasing Chasing Amy? Well, thank you so much for having me and, and these incredible questions, this conversation. All of your coverage about trans issues more generally, I can't tell you how appreciated it is that you all dig in and you question and consider how what you talk about with your platform affects how people understand who we are and what we're dealing with. So thank you for that. And then following um, what's going on with me, I am on all social media as Anderfin, which is odd. Uh, (laughs) A-N-D-E-R-F-I-N-N. That's a story for a later time. (laughs) And of course, my work at Glad, G-L-A-A-D. Some people confuse that for the trash bag company, specifically my girlfriend's friends. We're trying to make it clear I don't work for the trash bag company. Although, if they're... Listen, you're good at taking out the trash. I'm very... That is actually something I love to do. It's very cathartic. Um, Follow Glad and then for everything Chasing Chasing Amy, Chasing Amy Doc on all different social media handles. And we're going to be doing a whirlwind festival tour. Um, We will be at Bentonville in Arkansas after Tribeca, Provincetown, going to Frameline in San Francisco um, and many more to come. So we hope to see you and meet you all in person as you're able to come and, and talk about your own movie influences, what yeah. changed or saved your life, because ultimately that's that's where this movie is coming from. Thank you so much, Alex. Sounds great. That is our show. Until the end of Democracy, I'm Amanda Duberman, and this is The Betches Up Podcast. Bye. The Betches Up Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Sean Kilby, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Rebecca Sousmacat. Editing by Rebecca Sousmacat. Social media by Amanda Duberman and Bridget Swartz. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails at suppod at betches.com. Betches.